You're listening to Wicked Good Lawyers, the show that discusses all facets of the legal industry, the good, bad, and most importantly, the funny, through the stories and advice of trailblazer attorneys from across the country. I'm your host, Shiloh Maloney, a fifth-year associate at Barton Gilman, and welcome back for this week's episode... Looking for a court reporter for a deposition, arbitration, trial, or interview? Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. They provide on-demand access to more than 12,000 offices in over 2,700 cities across the country and have working business relationships with 5,000 independent court reporting professionals. No matter where you are or your state's requirement, they can provide an experienced professional court reporter for any situation. Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. At Datamine Discovery, they soundly collect and process this information efficiently to a host review platform at an affordable rate. Every litigator deserves to have eDiscovery review software that is efficient and affordable with access to customer service and project managers that make them feel supported. Hundreds of litigation attorneys from Boston and beyond trust Datamine every month to assist them with eDiscovery. You should too. Hey, all you Wicked Good Lawyer listeners, this is Shiloh Maloney, and this week's special guest is Joe Lucia. He's an assistant attorney general in Massachusetts since 2014. His work focuses in trial division. Joe defends lawsuits in a wide array of substantive legal areas brought against the Commonwealth and its agencies. Joe is also the treasurer of the Massachusetts LGBTQ Bar Association. Joe has been a member of the organization since his first year of law school in 2005. He was elected to the board of directors in 2015. Joe, we're so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. And just to share for our listeners, we're breaking this week's segment into talking about working from home, hybrid and remote opportunities. Then we're going into Joe's history and his clerkship at Foley and as an assistant Attorney General. And then we're going into our last segment, which is on LGBTQ inclusion. Okay, so let's kick it off, Joe. Since March 2020, the legal industry and really every industry has kind of experienced a shift, I would say, in work from home and work in person opportunities. Have you been seeing that in your position as the Assistant Attorney General as well? Yeah, for sure. There's been a lot of, I think, flexibility being offered nowadays by both legal employers as well as by the courts are being much more flexible with their caseloads as well. Personally, I can tell you from the attorney general's office, we were working fully remote for a big part of the pandemic. And I think only probably back in March or April of 2022, did we come back into the office space physically. That's a long time, almost two years, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we were being very, very conservative, I think, uh, as an office in terms of maintaining distance and trying to reduce as much transmission of the virus. And so it was, wasn't until April of 2022 that we were welcomed back into our office space. And even then it was on a hybrid basis. Under the Healy administration at the time, uh, the requirement and was that we had to be in the office a minimum of two days a week. 
and we could continue to work from home three days a week. That continues to be the protocol here under the uh, new Campbell administration. So who knows, it may change now that we have a new AG at the helm. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, people are just doing the hybrid two days in, three days from home. Some folks do more days in, but it is a two-day minimum. That's similar to us at Barton Gilman. We're also the two days in the office and then the rest at home. I really enjoy the flexibility. I think especially as an attorney in the legal profession, there's an opportunity to kind of have a life outside of the office now that everyone's not commuting into the city or commuting to any office that they have. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I I feel like being out of the office three days a week makes it really hard to still feel that personal social connection with my colleagues and seeing yeah. them so, so less frequently has been really isolating in a lot of ways. But I have to say, you know, the savings in commuter costs and commute time is really huge, especially for folks like me. I live all the way out in Norton, which is kind of south south of Boston on 495. So my commute is an hour and a half each way. Oh, wow. That's long. Yeah. And so before the pandemic, I was spending about $400 a month just to commute in and out of work five days a week. Wow. Commuter rail and such. So you know, the savings of time and expense afforded by being able to work in a hybrid fashion is is really not lost on me. And I, I really appreciate that flexibility. Yeah, I'm glad that you've been able to utilize that extra time and kind of the extra money as well. I do agree with you. It is hard with the interpersonal connections at the office where you don't see everybody as much as before and where people aren't going in the same two days as you. That's what I've been experiencing. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. It's hard because again, even though you are going in two days a week, you still see kind of the same people on those two days. So there's a whole bunch of people that you don't see. Like, do they still work here? Yeah, they do still work here. I just don't see them. Right. Yeah. That's what I've been experiencing as well. Trying to get on that Zoom meeting with them or get them on the phone is nice to, or some things we've been doing, actually, we've been trying to schedule in advance people to come in on the same day so we could grab lunch or drinks together. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I, I mean, in our office right now, we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of which days of the week we come in. There's sort of mandatory days we have to be here. And then there's a little more flexibility in terms of the second day. So I think folks are able to move things around sometimes if they need to, which kind of mixes it up a little bit, which is nice. Have you seen any limitations in work quality due to working part at home, part in the office? You know, again, the limitations to doing fully remote work or hybrid work mainly for me, again, just comes down to not being able to really walk down the hallway and and just knock on someone's door and talk through a case or talk through a legal analysis, you know, pre-pandemic and the before times, I would do that an awful lot. It was just kind of a nice way to to get through efficiently some kind of roadblocks if you encounter them in your work and you can say, hey, I know so-and-so did this, you know, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. Let me just go ask them for their impression. Somehow dropping in on colleagues using the chat function in Teams is still very invasive to me. I, I haven't quite <laughs> figured out how to do that in a way that doesn't make it feel like I'm I'm just dropping in on somebody unannounced, even though that's technically what I would have been doing if I knocked on their door. Right. Yeah. It, it feels different. It's so, so I mean, that's certainly a limitation as far as my work. You know, also I find, you know, mailing things out is really a challenge when you're working. From I home. agree. Yes. Yeah, it's so hard to like, especially in the AG's office or, or really any legal profession where you've got a letterhead and you're like, how do I mail this out on letterhead when I don't have letterhead? <laughs> it's really nice that, you know, the Supreme Judicial Court has loosened service rules to allow for email service in almost all circumstances. That helps the sort of pressure to have to mail things. It's nice to be able to email things. But, you know, obviously there are certain cases in which you can't email for service. And, and I'm thinking about pro se parties. I know here yeah. in the government, we get a lot of cases filed by pro se parties. And 
I think the rule there is, don't quote me on this, but I think the rule is that you need express written consent from the pro se litigant to serve them by yeah, email. Yeah, I do think right? you need it consent. Yeah. So yeah, so mailing things has been a limitation. It's been a challenge, but you know, we've tried to figure out workarounds using our support staff. So it's certainly not the same sort of, it's not as, as free-flowing and, and easy as it used to be, but, um, yeah. but we, we have ways to work around it. I think it's also nice to see where we are right now compared to 2020 and just imagine how much better it's going to get the work from home experience and the hybrid approach. I mean, a lot of small firms in 2020 when COVID hit didn't even have their paper documents scanned in, which blows my mind. And now everyone's just so virtual. It's really a game changer, I think. And I've seen that not only in regards to lawyers work product, but I've seen it in the ability for pro se litigants, as you were saying, but also people having access to legal services or pro bono opportunities for legal attorneys. For example, I work with a group pro bono out of Lynn called Lynn United for Change, and I do a lot of tenants' right work with them. And they had to switch everything over to Zoom once the pause on the eviction stop. So this was trying to get access for the local tenants to help with their answers and discovery getting filed. And that might not be as accessible for somebody to drive from work or drive from somewhere to get to the meeting, but then they have attorneys from all over the state who jump on the Zoom and they fill out the documents simultaneous with them, which that's been kind of cool. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think I've seen a lot of the same kind of flexibility that you're discussing in our office as well as well as sort of across the industry. I know certain colleagues of mine during the pandemic when we were fully remote were able to even move across country actually for quite some time, especially since so many court appearances were being postponed because of COVID, uh, especially in the civil litigation side, you know, nothing was really moving. Certainly no trials were happening, but uh, hearings right. things were, were all being done, like you say, over Zoom. So it gave folks the flexibility to say, you know what, I'm going to take this opportunity to relocate with my you know, spouse or my fiance mm-hmm. or my family just, you know, for Fonzies, you know, and they would move to some other crazy state or something just to have the experience. So so that definitely was an interesting flex uh, that I don't think anybody anticipated being able to, to do. I think so too. But I've also been hearing from the industry, some legal recruiters and firms saying that that's not really, those opportunities are far and few now. Mm-hmm. It's not as flexible as it was during COVID that you could live anywhere and do what we were doing, which is kind of interesting. It kind of brings us back to how we live in more of a ancient legal profession for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. But I do appreciate the increase in flexibility in all areas of our legal industry, which has been nice both for the attorneys, but also for some litigants as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think work from home is a great opportunity to have more of a work-life balance. I know that's such a big hot topic and that's always in the forefront of everybody's mind. I don't know if you saw recently the report that came out by the Lawyers Concern for Lawyers recently. They did a survey on, I think, 4,000 Massachusetts attorneys and they were talking with them about different areas in mental health. And one topic that came up obviously was the flexibility and schedule and hybrid approach. Mm -hmm. And they actually saw in the results that people who had more flexibility in their schedule, including hybrid opportunities, were more happy with their employer and career versus those who weren't. And I'll say I'm definitely one of them. How about you, Joe? Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I did see the report, the announcement that the report had come out. I saved, of course, locally, 
the executive summary, which I wanted to read. I've not yet had a chance to read it. But I think overall, my impression was that it wasn't really great news across the industry for what they were ultimately kind of their findings. But but yeah, no, I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that folks that have more flexibility in their work-life balance and where they're doing their work from tend to have a greater level of happiness or satisfaction with their career. You know, this is an industry that I think stresses people out just by its nature and feeling a little bit more freedom or self-control or the ability to control your own workspace and your own time is, I think, liberating in a way that gives us a lot less anxiety and makes us feel like we're more in control of our futures or of our career trajectories or even of of our day-to-day sort of lives. Um, So it's not surprising to me that that would be their finding. That's a great way to put it, especially where going back to that report a little bit, they talk about how 77% of attorneys have experienced burnout. And I just hope to see more of a trend in the flexibility and work-life balance, especially in our industry. I think it can really help people. So let's hope to see in five years what the work-life balance is like and the hybrid approaches then. Thanks for your insight on working from home and remote opportunities for work. Of course. Thank you for asking me those questions. I'm happy to share. Now we're going to go into the section all about Joe. Joe, I'd love to hear your story. This section is going to talk about your background, where you did some clerkships, worked at Foley, and are now an assistant attorney general from Massachusetts. I know you're a partner, native Bostonian, and an amateur chef. So, Joe, please tell us, who is Joe Lucia? Yeah, so, I mean, I really started from humble beginnings. I am a native Bostonian. I grew up in sort of lower middle class, humble beginnings in Dorchester, kind of the Ashmont area, if you're familiar with Dorchester, sort of the child of divorced parents. My parents lived in separate one floor apartments throughout my childhood in Dorchester. They were really only blocks away from each other, but obviously living separately um, and living in a one floor apartment is pretty tight when you've got, you know, sort of a parent and a sibling. I have an older sister. You know, it never occurred to me that my parents sleeping in the living room on a couch every night was weird, that they didn't have their own bedroom space, but that was all we could afford. So we, like I say, started from very humble beginnings. My educational background is is sort of starting like most Irish Italian Catholics do in the Dorchester area. Started at a Catholic parochial school in Dorchester when I was in elementary school. And then actually when I was in middle school, I was recruited as a member of the Boston Boy Choir, which was kind of an interesting pivot. So I sang with the Boston Boy Choir from grades five through eight at a Catholic parochial school in Harvard Square, which was a really interesting experience. That sounds like a cool opportunity. Yeah, definitely different. I, something that I, I is unique and I look back on those memories very fondly. But then I graduated from middle school and went to Boston Latin School, which is a public high school here in in Boston. It is a testing school, if you're not familiar with it. It's a pretty intense, academically rigorous program. And so uh, I graduated from there as the salutatorian of my senior class. Congratulations. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, it was a lot of hard work. I, I definitely had my nose in books for four full years, for sure. But I graduated from there in 1999 and then went on to college in Western Mass. So I, I attended Williams College, which is a small liberal arts college out in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Graduated from there in 2003 with a degree uh, in psychology and American studies. It was a double major. Took a couple of years off after that to sort of do some paralegaling work at Sullivan and Worcester, which is now known as Sullivan. It's a pretty uh, big firm here in the Yeah, Boston I've heard of that before. Yeah, and uh, did tax law there, which is a a strange pivot again for somebody from Dorchester that never knew what taxes were. So that was interesting, but really enjoyed my time at Sullivan. 
for those two years and then went off to law school. So I went to BC Law School in 2005 and graduated from there in 2008 and started my legal career kind of at that time. So I went from there to do a clerkship at the Massachusetts Appeals Court. I should mention for, for the sake of completion that I did serve as a summer associate at Foley Hoag, uh, which is a big firm here in, in the Seaport District. And I was there in 2007, the summer of 2007. Experience, I think for me, was very nerve wracking and anxiety inducing. I think I really had a lot of you know, impressions of what I was supposed to be or what I was supposed to do or how, how good I was supposed to, to do it how well I was supposed to do it. And I, and I think it just kind of got the better of me that it, it kind of traumatized me a little bit. And I thought, oh. I, I need to put the brakes on this lawyer thing because I have real bad sort of, I thought I was a fraud, like somebody eventually is going to find out that I'm just this sort of poor kid from Dorchester and I don't deserve to be in, the, in these hallowed halls of a big white shoe law firm. So I kind of was like, I got to pump the brakes. How do I do that? And my decision to pump the brakes was, I know, I'll just go do a clerkship for a year and that will be the, the break I need. So I had no interest in clerking initially, but then I thought, let's try this out. And I applied for clerkships at the Supreme Judicial Court and at the Massachusetts Appeals Court. If you're not familiar with the clerkship process, they kind of hire their clerks from the top down, so to speak. So they start with the Chief Justice of the SJC. And then as each judge with seniority selects their clerk for the coming year, you kind of trickle down to the next rung of the ladder, so to speak, and, and you get interviewed by the next associate justice of the court if they're interested. That makes sense. Yeah. So I actually started with my first interview in the interview process was with Margaret Marshall, who was the chief justice of the uh, SJC at the time. She was, I, I was sort of fangirling a little bit because she <laughs> wrote the decision to authorize gay marriage, to legalize gay marriage in Massachusetts. So for me, it was like, I don't know how I got three words out, but obviously I didn't really get the right words out because she was like, yeah, thanks, I'll pass. <laughs> um, so I, I ended up trickling down the ladder to Justice Botsford, who was the most junior judge on the SJC at the time. I guess none of the male justices in the middle were interested in me. And Justice Botsford had a great conversation with me, but she, she was like, no, I'll pass. So I trickled down a little bit further. And, and ultimately, after a few interviews with the appeals court, ended up meeting Judge Buno, Ariam Buno at the Massachusetts Appeals Court, who is, at the time was one of the most junior justices in 2007 when I met her. She is still on the court today. She is now the most senior associate judge on the court, uh, which is kind of awesome. That is. But, yeah. And so I, I worked with her for one full year and then finished with her in 2009, sort of the fall of 2009, when I was supposed to start back at Foley Hoag, but we were really <laughs> right on the, the edge of a recession. And so Foley Hoag, like every other big law firm in the city, said, no, no, let's pause a little bit. We're not quite ready to bring in our first year associate class right now go do something for four months. So I asked Judge Dino, what should I do to spend my time over the next four months? And she said, well, I think the Superior Court is on a hiring freeze. Why don't you walk over next door to see if they would like some volunteer clerkship assistance? So I said, that sounds like a good idea. So I walked over to the civil clerk's office or the clerk's office uh, for Suffolk Superior Court. And I got about three words out about how I was willing to be a volunteer law clerk. And I think they like threw me in a closet and said, we need a summary judgment decision in 45 minutes. <laughs> They were really underwater. They had so yeah. much work to, to pump out and they were on a strict hiring freeze. They weren't mm -hmm. able to hire any new clerks. And so I ended up getting paired up with Judge Margaret Hinkle, who was a judge in the business litigation session at the time. And she's now retired, but I still stay in very close touch with her. And she's a great mentor to me. But I worked with her on her cases that, that she was dealing with on her docket for the three to four months that I had in between clerking for the Mass Appeals Court and then going to Foley Hoag. So I started to Foley Hoag in 2010 and was there through 2014. 
in April of 2014 was when I left and came over to the Attorney General's office. So while I was at Foley, I did all civil litigation, varying types, and then came to the Attorney General's office in their trial division, which is where I handle a, a practice of all civil litigation, all civil defense litigation, representing, as you mentioned in your earlier segment, of the Commonwealth and state agencies. I love your story and thank you for definitely sharing it all with us. Even going back to your childhood, it sounds similar to mine also having divorced parents and um, living in an apartment with my single mother. So I definitely understand that. And I feel like you got to persevere through so much and had these opportunities. And I know we laugh a bit where you're saying you interviewed at the top and you kind of were getting pushed down that they weren't interested, but it says a lot about you to even get those interviews. It's such a pat on the back for everything you've done through your life. So thanks for sharing kind of the dynamics of that. Do you have any advice for younger, maybe law students or attorneys looking to start in a clerkship in the court? Yeah. So if you're interested in the clerkship, I think, and you should absolutely do it, especially if you're interested in pursuing a career in litigation. If you're interested in criminal litigation, civil litigation, doesn't matter. Being a law clerk will really help sort of cement your interest in it, if that's truly what you want to do, and really allow you to sort of peek behind the curtain, so to speak, and get a sense of what judges understand and look for and how they react to certain types of litigants or arguments. It's a real unique opportunity to get an inside look into how the sausage is made, so to speak. You know, and I think there are also, I have had colleagues that have gone and done clerkships and that have not pursued litigation uh, as a career choice. They instead sort of pursued a transactional practice, which um, is, I think, less common. But don't be afraid, I would say, that if you choose to do a clerkship, you are pigeonholed for the rest of your career as a litigator. There's, it's certainly early enough in your career that there's plenty of flexibility to choose what comes next. But if you're looking to, to become a, a law clerk here in Massachusetts, I, would, I only have experience at the appellate level of the state court system. But obviously, doing well in law school makes a big difference. Being able to show that you worked hard in law school and, and achieved, you know, really good grades, that is kind of prominent in your application. You know, what you've done maybe over your first or second summer as a law student may come into play as well. If you've done something in the legal industry, something relevant, something that shows that you're truly interested in maybe public service, if you can get a job doing even something that's unpaid, which I know is very challenging these days, especially with inflation being what it is and the cost of living in Boston being so high. But if you can afford to sort of invest for your summer in volunteering the AG's office, for example, or at a district attorney's office, or even as a legal sort of intern at a court, uh, those are all really good ways of signaling to a potential judge mentor that you would be interested in pursuing public service. So those would kind of be like my best takeaways or best notes for how to pursue a clerkship and and do it well. Joe, when you were transitioning from your clerkship to fully HOAG, what type of work were you doing there? I assume you're in the litigation department, but were you in a certain practice area? Yeah, so at fully HOAG, they have some pretty large practice areas, practice groups, and litigation was one of them. Now, the litigation group kind of had some small specialty sub-practice groups within it. But my my memory is that when you first start there, you're kind of just tagged as a general litigation associate that can kind of be put on any cases that have to do with anything in litigation. You could be doing IP litigation. You could be doing commercial disputes. You could be doing international arbitration. You could be doing really anything that comes into the firm that is litigation. You would be sort of fair game to be tapped on the shoulder by a partner to be staffed on a case. 
most of the litigation I ended up working on was product liability related. Um, oh, the firm cool. had, a, had a sort of a small practice group that did exclusively asbestos related uh, litigations. Or, or they also did some other types of litigations that were product liability sort of adjacent. But most of the product liability work they had was defending one or two clients uh, that was sort of routinely brought into these suits alleging, you know, asbestos exposure that has caused some sort of I remember my time in product liability class learning about those cases. Right. Yeah. So um, so I did quite a bit of that kind of work, but I also worked on some professional liability and, and other types of big commercial contract disputes. I remember one case I was working on representing, um, I think we represented Miller Coors in a lawsuit against the New England Patriots. That was not very popular for us to do. But yeah, so I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, really interesting litigation that Foley Hoag handles, and I just kind of was tapped and tagged to do a bunch of it. That's definitely a cool opportunity. And I hear that at a usually firms that aren't just solo, you get to kind of try your hat in different practice areas, which is nice when you're new to the industry and you're trying to figure out what you like as well. But it's always good to be a team player, I think, in a litigation department. Do you agree, Joe? Oh, for sure. I mean, you have to rely on your colleagues and, and be trusted by your colleagues to get good work done and to do it on time, especially when you're staffed on very large cases and there's so much work that needs to get done, you really need to know that your colleagues have your back and that, and they need to know that you have theirs for sure. What made you decide to leave and transition to this awesome career as an assistant attorney general? Yeah, so I'm going to sort of pull back the curtain a little bit further on big law just generally. and, and say Oh, yeah, that would be great. And say something that's probably a little bit controversial. But for those who are interested in pursuing careers in big law, I mean, I think it should be not surprising, but maybe some people might find it surprising that, you know, most of the associates that start in big law don't end up becoming partners at big law. I mean, if you just look at the numbers of, of folks that are recruited into the firm at the first degree or associate level, and then look at the numbers that are promoted to partnership, obviously there's quite a differential there. So yeah. you know, I think a lot of associates come to big law and then they realize this is not really what I want to do for the rest of my life. Or perhaps they come to big law and they say, you know, this is great but maybe there's not the practice area that I want to pursue, you know, and then in a lot of cases, the firm makes a business decision and says, you know, it's been great having you here. Everybody loves working with you. Unfortunately, you're getting too expensive for our clients and we've run out of the kind of work that you've sort of niched yourself into. For me, I feel like what happened was I was in the litigation department and I did a lot of asbestos work and a lot of sort of, you know, that kind of product liability work. And as it turns out, a lot of products stopped including asbestos in the 70s and 80s. And so eventually people stopped getting sick from asbestos exposure, which is great for public health, <laughs> uh, not so much great for Joe's book of business. And so ultimately, when I became a fifth or even sixth year associate, I do senior I had become, the firm said, the work that you know how to do, the work that you've been doing is great. And everybody really enjoys having you. Unfortunately, we just don't have that much of that work any longer. And I said, well, can I, can I do some of the other work? And, and I think the response I remember giving was, you know, to allow you to do work in other types of legal areas at this point would be too expensive for our clients to afford. You are, you are being billed out at a fifth or sixth year associate rate, but you don't you have more like second or third year associate knowledge to come into sort of other areas of litigation at this point. So yeah, so at Foley Hoag, I think kind of what had happened was the work that I had been familiar with kind of was drying up and the firm wasn't getting as many clients with those issues any longer. Uh, in the asbestos product liability area. And so I think it just sort of as a matter of business decision made sense to ask me to sort of move along to find my next great thing. 
And that's sort of a reality that I think hits a lot of young associates at big law firms. And I, I think there's a certain, there's a certain, I don't know, impression that when you get asked to leave a big law firm, you've done something wrong, or you should be upset with yourself, or you should be disappointed that you've let somebody down. And, and it's really not that at all. It is a purely business decision about who's cheap labor and who can do the work, you know, for cheaper and, and how can we build this out to our clients. And so so after four or five years, I mean, I think it was it was the right time for me to move along. And, you know, and that's how I found the attorney general's office. I didn't really know anything about the attorney general's office at the time. In fact, I had no idea what the attorney general's office did. But my mentor, who was a partner at Foley Hoag, Michael Keating, who is an amazingly talented, brilliant litigator, was able to sort of connect me with the, the attorney general's office and point me in that direction, which I think was a really valuable connection to be made. You know, I think it reminds me about the importance of having mentors and trusting your mentor and, and having connections in the legal community that can assist you in getting to the, your, your next great thing as you proceed along in your career. And interestingly, I had met Michael Keating uh, way back in 2003 when I was at Williams. I was about to graduate from Williams College in 2003. And I heard that there was a professor on campus who I was teaching a legal related legal studies kind of course for the winter term, which was just in January. And I asked the career counseling services, how do I meet with this gentleman? I'd really like to talk to him and, and ask him, how do I become a paralegal in Boston when I graduate from Williams? And so he said, I connected with him over email and he said, oh, well, me and my, my co-presenter, my co-teacher for this course will be on campus, you know, such and such a morning. Why don't you meet us over coffee? And I said, okay, great. And I spoke with him and his co-presenter teacher for about an hour, and they gave me some really great advice about how to become a paralegal after graduating from Williams. And as it turns out, his co-presenter teacher uh, was someone named Martha Copley, uh, who happened what to are be- the on, chances? <laughs> right? I have Martha Copley and Michael Keating, both graduates of Williams College. And so, you know, the point of the story is go for coffee, meet these people. You don't know necessarily who they are today yes. or where they're going to be five or 10 years from now, but those are the connections that you'll need to rely on sometime down the road. So, so go for coffee, meet with Michael Keatings, meet with Martha Coakley, and, <laughs> and, and, and you just never know where, where it's going to take you. That's so true. You never yeah. know who you're going to meet could lead to something else or that you could help them. That's right. That's right. And so Mike Keating was able to connect me with Martha Coakley's office, and I went through a, a few rounds of interviews here and, and ultimately came on board and was super excited about it because and come to find the trial division does civil litigation defense work, which is precisely what I had been doing at Foley civil litigation defense work. So the skill set really transitioned it really well and it was very transferable. And so I think it's a great fit to come over here and be in the trial division. I love that story, Joe. I did not know anything about that. And I think our listeners will find that very insightful, especially where you're sharing about big law. Not everyone knows that, especially if you're not in big law. But even if you are, you never really know the big picture regarding it's not just you, as you were saying, like sometimes you feel like a decision that the firm makes is about you personally. But a lot of the times it's a business decision based on the clients, based on their needs at the time. And that happens in any industry. That's so right. I appreciate you being candid with that side of it. And in your current position as an assistant attorney general, what are your various practice areas? Yeah. So like I said, we do civil litigation defense work here in the trial division. It's a bit of a misnomer. I think a lot of people hear trial division, they go, oh, you do all the trials for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. No, 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 no. That would be crazy. 
<laughs> what we do is we do the trials that are civil and defensive in nature. So anytime somebody sues the Commonwealth or a state agency looking for money damages, that's a case that very likely could end up in our division. Uh, so my current caseload includes a bunch of different subject areas or subject matters. I have a lot of tort cases, which of course we all know from law school mean personal injury or property damage type cases. So I've got cases alleging wrongful death or even uh, personal injury, for example, on construction projects that the Commonwealth has going on, a bunch of motor vehicle accidents. Uh, people forget that we have a lot of public employees driving around on our roadways all the time, not going to name names, but there are certain <laughs> agencies that have lots of fleets of vehicles that travel around our roadways. And sometimes they get into minor scrapes or fender benders. And so we have to defend those types of things as well. My caseload also includes civil rights cases. Those cases tend to come to us largely from our inmate or detainee populations, folks that are either incarcerated post-trial or pre-trial that bring some allegations or claims that their civil rights are being trampled upon, they will bring as well. Um, I do do a fair number of employment discrimination cases, discrimination alleged on all different types of bases. I've handled sexual orientation discrimination, age discrimination, gender discrimination, national origin, disability, age. So there's a real gamut there, but employment discrimination and retaliation cases are pretty common uh, here in the trial division. I also currently have uh, an erroneous conviction case assigned to me. Those are particularly uh, hard sometimes when you see that there's a, a record of a criminal prosecution that has taken place, you know, sometimes decades ago, where further evidence has come to light to suggest that the person who was prosecuted and convicted was in fact innocent of the crime. I mean, that's just a total travesty. Yeah. And the injustice that's done there is really hard to swallow. But, you know, we as the trial division will receive these types of cases and make sure that if, in fact, the evidence does suggest the person was actually innocent of the crime, that they are compensated somehow for the loss of freedom and liberty that they suffered during their sentence. That must uh, be interesting to be a part of. I feel like I would like that to kind of help somebody that was disadvantaged, especially in a situation like that. Yeah. So, I mean, these types of cases are, are fewer and further between than most yeah. of our other run-of-the-mill stuff, but they do tend to garner a lot of media attention, especially if they're sort of high profile, you know, because again, the public wants to believe that they can trust their government and they mm -hmm. want to believe that anytime somebody is convicted by an unbiased jury, that the conviction is, you know, is a good conviction. And so it's really scary to see these types of cases where somebody says, oh, you know what, whoops, we, we messed that up. So yeah, so they can be they can be challenging cases in a lot of different ways. I'm glad to hear that they're far and few because that gives me more hope in our justice systems. You know, as you're saying, people want to know that our government is doing the right thing. So, but it's also good to know there is kind of a backstop that if more information comes out years later that they're able to prove it, they do have that opportunity and they can get some sort of compensation. What would you say your pros and cons of being an assistant attorney general are? Yeah, so I mean, one of the big pros of being an assistant attorney general, and this kind of flows from our erroneous conviction conversation, is that, you know, we really have the freedom to do what is right. Unlike working for a private sector client who kind of beats the drum and says, you must vindicate my name, et cetera. Right. Um, we can be able to take that position and say, was the right thing done here? Are we doing the right and so it's kind of nice to have, in some respects, kind of a faceless client that we're representing who doesn't call us all the time and say, I want this, I want that. We kind of have the ability to take a step back and say, we're the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We, our client is justice. Our client is, is to make sure that we are doing what's right by the taxpayers and, and by the citizens of this Commonwealth. 
I love um, that. Our client is justice. Yeah. I mean, that's how I think of my, my job every day when I wake up. This is who I come to work for. I come to work for this is justice. Uh, yeah. in, in a lot of different ways. You know, obviously some of the more on the ground pros of being an assistant AG, the work-life balance is great as compared to the private sector. We have a much more steady sort of nine to five schedule as you might imagine being in government service. Professional development, I think is also huge here. Professional development happens by actually doing the thing. I think in a lot of big firms and maybe even mid-sized firms, the professional development is sort of canned and it's put on by, you know, presenters who teach you about what it looks like to take a deposition. No, 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 no. Here you take the deposition and that's how you learn. Right. I just remember coming here from Foley Hoag in 2014 and being staffed on a, an employment case and, and working with a more senior attorney who said to me, okay, well, we've got these three depositions we need to defend next week, but I've, I'm busy. I've got other things on my calendar. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and, and go to those depositions and just defend them. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Wait, what do I do? <laughs> and, and she was like, I thought you said you worked at Foley Hoag for four and a half years. I'm like, I did. They didn't let me do anything. Um, <laughs> it, it, what I mean, a doctor of Right, right, exactly, exactly. You know, the the on the, your feet in court experiences are very few and far between. So being an assistant AG gives you the professional development of actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very and, hands on, yeah, fall on your face kind of, but that helps too. You know, you learn as you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, the biggest con to being an assistant AG is the salary. When you work for state government, you obviously have to expect being paid quite a bit more modestly than what you would get in the private sector. You know, I took a 66% pay cut to come from Foley to, to this office, which was, wow. not, was not insubstantial. So you really have to want to do this work because it's not something you're going to live lavishly on the salary. Of, of. Sometimes so. It's hard going off of that. It's not even just wanting to do it. It's also, can they live off of it? You know what I mean? Amen. It's on everyone's situation, like what they, what scholarships they got, how much they paid for law school, all these other things too. A hundred percent. Do they come from backgrounds that are lower middle class or lower economic class that they've got family members they're caring for, younger brothers, younger sisters, old elderly parents? Your life circumstances will really determine whether or not you have the the privilege, really, truly right, yeah. the privilege of doing this kind of work because the pay doesn't allow everybody who wants to do it to be able to. Right. Yeah. Looking for a court reporter for a deposition, arbitration, trial, or interview? Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. They provide on-demand access to more than 12,000 offices in over 2,700 cities across the country and have working business relationships with 5,000 independent court reporting professionals. No matter where you are or your state's requirement, they can provide an experienced professional court reporter for any situation. Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. At Datamine Discovery, they soundly collect and process this information efficiently to a host review platform at an affordable rate. Every litigator deserves to have e-discovery review software that is efficient and affordable with access to customer service and project managers that make them feel supported. Hundreds of litigation attorneys from Boston and beyond trust Datamine every month to assist them with e-discovery. You should too. That's interesting. That was one of my questions, what an entry-level 
assistant attorney general does make, not you, because I know you're not entry level. Is that something you can share? I think it might be public knowledge, but I don't know. It sure is. Yeah. So all public salaries in Massachusetts are available online. You can search for them online. So there's nothing about this that is, you know, in any way kind of secretive or, or needs to be privileged. The starting salary here at the AG's office for an assistant attorney general is about $70,000. Okay. And that is that assumes you're coming to us with about five years of prior litigation experience. That uh, makes we, sense, yeah. We tend not to hire assistant AGs straight out of law school, other than perhaps through our fellowship program, which we can talk about if you'd like. But yeah, the starting salary for an AAG with about five years of prior litigation experience under their belt is 70 grand. But your salary will grow each year from then on. Uh, the prior administration, just before it ended, put in place a really nice sort of ladder system of increasing lockstep salary increases over the course of time that you serve as an assistant attorney general. So currently, if you've got 10 years out of law school, you tend to make closer to 83000 If you've got 15 years out of law school, you'd be making closer to 95000 So it definitely goes up with your, with your experience. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's and still never going to be even close to what you would make in the private sector, not even, not even a stone. Yeah. I mean, it is difficult because I, I think, right, it's from the taxpayers, as I assume, or there's a budget from the state for it. Of course. Yeah. So we are a state agency. And so what that means is we are funded by taxpayer dollars. Every year, uh, the state legislature passes a budget and kind of has a line item for each of its state agencies for how much that they will allocate to that particular agency. And we have to work within the budget that we're given. Um, you know, in the time that I've been here at the AG's office, we've had a real the real benefit of having some attorneys general who go to Congress, go to the state legislature across the street and say, we need more funding. Our people are not getting paid enough. Yeah. You know, cost of living is skyrocketing and we can't operate under this budget. So, but it's funny, people say it takes an act of Congress to get paid more. It truly does. It truly <laughs> yeah. takes an act of Congress. I know it's kind of similar to, I think when they say the walk to the hill or talk to the hill, that's oh, yeah. more so for public defense, I think. Yeah, so the Walk to the Hill, which has since been converted, I think, during the pandemic to Talk to the Hill, is an effort to increase funding for civil legal aid, is my understanding. So Yeah, um, okay, civil legal aid, yeah. That's I, I, well. I think that's mostly civil legal aid. So, you know, to fund organizations that provide pro bono legal services to indigent folks that can't afford to right. you know, pay for an attorney, um, sometimes those are the most needing, needy and, and deserving segments of our community. Um, for legal services. And so it's a great, it's a great effort and, you know, an annual thing that happens. And I think absolutely people should support it. What gets you excited every day to be an assistant attorney general? Yeah, so I kind of touched on this a little bit before, but, you know, the feeling of independence that I have in doing the work that I do, it's really nice to wake up every day and say, what cases do I want to work on today? What needs my attention? What do I want to spend my time doing? You know, as an assistant aging in trial, we are given our own caseload um, and we are asked to sort of litigate it from beginning to end, soup to nuts. And we have supervision, of course. We have supervisors that we meet with on a regular basis to check in and make sure that our cases are progressing appropriately. But the decisions about how to progress that case are made by us as the individual attorneys on the case. So there's a lot of responsibility and there's a lot of strategic thinking. A lot of you know, Oh, it, incredible amounts of autonomy. And you don't feel like you're sort of being watched by Big Brother and, and being micromanaged. There's no time for that here. We we in the trial division are a division of a, about 30 assistant AGs. And at any given moment, we have about 800 open cases. So 
there's an awful wow. lot of work. <laughs> I mean, it's like a small law firm or yeah. even a small law firm doing a lot of work. Um, you know, so the independence that I get from being able to sort of decide my daily grind uh, is, is really nice. And that, that, that's exciting. And on the other side of it, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, so um, obviously there's stress in any kind of litigation, whether you're doing it for the public sector or if I'm working on a trial, if I'm in the middle of trial, that is a real stress fest for even somebody with my years of experience. And it's stressful, I think, for a different reason than most people find trial stressful. You know, for me, it's a constant question, am I doing justice? Is this the right outcome? Is, the, is what I'm fighting for the right results for these folks, for these individuals, for this and the, Those are great thoughts to have. I mean, I think it's just really important that we think like that all the time. And our mm-hmm. office really makes a lot of strides in making sure that we are representing clients, our state agencies, in a strategic way. But that doesn't mean just because we can means we should. Just because we can doesn't mean that we should end up doing that very thing. We need to take a step back and say, what is the greater goal that we're striving for mm-hmm. here? What did the citizens of Massachusetts want and deserve out of this government? We've created internally things like a racial justice and equity roundtable or a gender bias resource group that I am members of because I want to be sure that I'm staying in touch with the real intricate nuances of various communities that we serve. I I want to know the diversity of our Commonwealth and I want to make sure that I'm representing that diversity every time I step foot into a courtroom. And so I think what keeps me up at night is just hoping and and praying that I am doing justice for these citizens. And I feel like sometimes the first step is even just being able to ask yourself that. You don't always hear that. So I think I really applaud you on that side for your work. What would somebody's career path as an assistant attorney general, can you work your way up internally? Oh, sure. So, you know, it's interesting. I feel like internally to this office, you come in as, as an assistant AG with however many years of experience that you have. You get compensated based on your prior years of experience, um, but there's really no tiered structure for promotions, so to speak. There is a very, very small category of attorneys that are known as senior counsel, which are typically reserved for folks that have very specialized sort of legal training or have been here for literally decades that are just a wealth of information and wisdom. And so you can kind of strive to become a senior counsel which does come with a bit of a pay hike, but those are very, very few and far between in terms of the opportunities for that. So almost like a partner. Um, I mean, kind of. You, you can yeah. kind of think of it like a partner. They still have the title of assistant AG when they when they file pleadings and such. They're only senior counsel internally for purposes okay. of our sort of internal structure. But other than that, there are no real tiers, right? Like you can pr- promote into management, right? As, so the attorney general's office is organized first into bureaus and then into divisions. Oh, interesting. Every division has a chief. There's a chief of the division. And sometimes if it's a big enough division, they'll have a deputy chief of the division. Uh, And then in the level above that, at the bureau level, there are also chiefs and deputy chiefs. So if you really wanted to sort of climb the quote unquote ladder of the attorney general's office, perhaps you might aim to become management at some level of division or bureau. But otherwise, there's really very little sort of promotional opportunities in terms of, you know, changing your title or something along those lines. And it's worth noting that 
even if you promote yourself up through management, you got to be careful because at the end of the day, this is still a political office. Right. Uh, right. And, it, and if you end up promoting too far and then your attorney general does something crazy, like becomes governor, you may now be out of a job because mm-hmm. guess what? There's a new head honcho at the helm. And, so true. And so they may want to bring in their own people to sort of be their closest advisors. And so now you you know, used to be a bureau chief of a, of a bureau, but now you've got to get cut because they need to make room for the next administration. So sometimes there's a benefit to sort of being sort of laying low and being a, a line AG, as they call it. Yeah, there's well, definitely a balance there, it seems like. For sure. For sure. You, you definitely want to make sure that you are continuing to progress in your career trajectory without, you know, somehow jeopardizing that trajectory altogether. Well, I really enjoyed listening to your experience and your background. Thanks for your segment on from clerkship, fully HOAG to assistant attorney general. Now we're going to turn our segment over to the LGBTQ inclusion. I thought this would be a helpful segment to have Joe on for because of his board experience with the Massachusetts Bar Association of the LGBTQ community. So I know we work in a rather dated profession. We've talked about this before, but definitely we can see that with the side of inclusion, gender identity, sexual identity. And this impacts every attorney, not just people who feel such as a minority or within um, the LGBTQ community. And I think it would be great if we could discuss today how we could possibly promote LGBTQ inclusion in the legal industry. Joe, do you see some limitations in our industry currently on having inadequate inclusion for the LGBTQ community, specifically towards attorneys? I think we get this question a lot sort of when we're asked to speak on panels or, or be included in something as members of the board of directors for the Massachusetts LGBTQ Bar Association. You know, questions come to us about, you know, tell us about your life experience and how different it must have been right. to be LGBTQ. And certainly we have all had very different experiences, I think, in life, uh, whether we're LGBTQ or, or not. But, you know, in, in my experience, Recently, I think gays and lesbians have really become far more welcomed by the legal industry than say, other segments of our population like trans and gender nonconforming folks. So I would say the industry itself is doing a lot. It's making the effort to at least be cognizant that it needs to do more. And I think that in and of itself is, is progress. A step in the right direction, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't have all the answers, unfortunately, and I can't really... I know, me it. either. But I definitely think... The firm's taking a step or office is taking a step to be vocal saying, hey, we know there's these limitations and we're actually here to try and figure it out. Right, exactly. I mean, it's kind of one of those things you can't fix a problem assuming it needs to be fixed until you acknowledge that there's a problem. And yes. so, you know, for firms and, and other parts of our legal employment sectors to be able to say, hey, let's take a look at, at this area of diversity or this segment of our community. How can we be better involved? How can we help to promote inclusivity. I think it's a a strong first step in the right direction, you know, but at at bottom, it's just so important to remember that we are all human beings and we're all entitled to respect. Yeah. So as, as we, as we progress down this road of inclusion, you know, we need to continue to strive, for example, to use proper pronouns when speaking with or about a trans or gender nonconforming person. We need to be patient with ourselves and accept that along this journey of inclusivity, we're going to meet challenges. We're going to trip up at times. We're going to make mistakes, but it's just important to keep trying. Yes. You know, and we just need to continue to appreciate the diversity of perspectives that are offered by LGBTQ lawyers and law students. 
you know, we really have all walked in very different shoes than most in the street community. And we have gained a unique wisdom and worldview as a result of doing so. You know, let us share that with your legal practice. Let us share that for the benefit of your clients. Let's lean into those diverse experiences and see how we can leverage them to do even better, more informed work for our our legal clients and, and the legal community at large. I really appreciate the way you put that, especially where, as we were kind of talking offline a bit, some of the issue is that the burden of the education for things such as LGBTQ inclusion shouldn't fall on the shoulders of people in that community only, or the majority of it. You know, you see people in these minority communities and we being, if you're an outsider, try to latch on saying, teach us, how do we do this? Is this the right thing to say? And it's, that's not their burden. And I hope that a lot of places can work on trying to figure out how to minimize that impact, because then we're basically having a community who already is or having issues with the way that they're approached or represented. And now we're trying to tell them, well, tell us how we need to fix it. And that's I don't think that's the best approach. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a fine line between tell us how we need to fix it and tell us what your experience is. Right. When it comes to tell us what your experience is, this might be a little controversial for me to say, but I actually think it's okay to expect, you know, those minority communities to do the work. I know a lot of woke individuals would really clutch their pearls at the idea that (laughs) at the idea that minorities should have to educate others about their own experience. But honestly, who better to do it? You know, how can we have a dialogue? How can we learn? How can we grow and say we want to understand your community better? but we can't expect you to tell us about your community. I mean, that doesn't really make sense to me. Now, when it comes to the the opposite side of that fine line, tell us how to fix it. Certainly, it's important to welcome perspectives from all the various uh, stakeholders, including members of that minority community. And, And you certainly can't, I think, stand back and say, well, they haven't told us how to fix it. So we're, we're absolved of any responsibility to try. Um, yeah. Right. I think that's a whole, that's a, that's a different discussion. I think in terms of education writ large, I don't see the problem with expecting minority communities to do the legwork of educating folks outside of their community to say, this is what we experienced. This is how we've come to sort of see this. This is how it's impacted us. This is what my experience was you know, growing up, et cetera. Growing up as a gay man in the 90s in Dorchester was not easy. Certainly, I was bullied as a young child. I honestly, it was, the bullying was so bad that I stopped taking the school bus to school and decided instead to take public transportation on the MBTA, which took twice as long to get to and from Boston Latin. But I did it because my daily life was so much less stressful from not having to board that school bus full of teenage bullies. Right. But what that taught me growing up as a gay man was I can't expect other people to understand how I see this world. When my best friend sort of asked me, when did I know I was gay? You know, the only thing I could think to say to him was, well, when did you know you were straight? (laughs) Right. Yes. That was the only way I could get through to him to help him understand that this is natural. This is something that I did not choose just the way you did not choose to be straight. It's just what felt right to you. Right. So. I think it's a real blessing and benefit to have been able to grow up gay because it taught me the importance of perspective adoption. And I mm-hmm. think that is something that we as a community have to help teach folks outside of our community, right? So if you're a law firm, if you're a legal employer, if you're trying to figure out how to be more inclusive, be more accepting, we don't really use the word tolerance anymore, but 
how do you welcome people into the fold? I think a big part of that is recognizing that you'll probably never fully understand somebody else's worldview or somebody else's life experience because you're not walking in their shoes and you never will. Yes. Yeah. But be open to hearing their story and let them tell you what their experience has been. And that will help start informing decisions about how best to, to solve problems or fix things that you might need. And thank you for sharing your story with us. And I know a lot of times it's the culture that people don't feel like they can share their story. And even myself, I don't identify as an LGBTQ minority, but I definitely feel an ally. And in other regards, my community or identity coming from low income, a single mother, those are stories and experiences that other people don't see of you or they don't expect of you. And just being able to be open about it and also have somebody be interested in learning your experiences goes a long way. So I definitely agree with the point that being able to have a work culture where they can share their experiences is such a big step. And I I think kind of going along with that, we have to remember the danger of singular labels being ascribed to folks in our business, in our firm, in our community. Just because I'm gay doesn't mean I'm only gay. Right. Just because somebody somebody is a woman doesn't mean she's only a woman. Just because somebody is Asian American doesn't mean they're only Asian American. You know, I'm gay, but I'm also the product of a, a single parent household. I'm also a member of the or was grow, grew up in the lower economic class. I also am an urban had an urban childhood. I also have a sibling. Um, you know, I'm a brother. I'm an uncle. Your fiance. Know, I'm a fiance. Um, you know, we, we wear all of these hats and they inform who we are as people in a very unique way, each and every one of them. But I think sometimes when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, we as humans try to boil it down to labels because that's how we sort of categorize and understand yes, yeah. the communities that we're talking about. And we almost lose sight of the humanity that really underpins it all. Um, so it's, so important, it's important to keep, keep, you know, not lose the forest for the trees and just kind of keep perspective that is both inclusive, but also not exclusive of other identities. Sort of intersectionality that exists within all of these communities is, is something we're, we need to talk more about. And I think people find it easier, just big picture to categorize individuals for their own benefit. It's easier for them to say, okay, this person is this, this person is this. But that's not all the person is. They bring so much more to the table than what you think they identify as, which also is a great point going back to the use of pronouns. And especially in the legal industry, I was thinking about this segment a bit and things that are so outdated are assuming pronouns within the court system, within pleadings. You always use Madam Clerk or she and him or in divorce cases, husband and wife. And I've been trying to figure out how can we be more inclusive, even in the legal drafting? Do you have any thoughts on that, Joe? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong. And again, this might be another controversial landmine I'm about to step on. (laughs) I I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with using gendered language, so long as you, the gender you're using is exactly how the audience member finds themselves. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying Madam Clerk, if you know that she is, in fact, Madam Clerk. But I guess when, what if you don't know? So again, if you don't know, then there's certainly, you know, ways around that. I, I think if you're writing a correspondence, like a cover letter to the court and you say, you know, dear superior court clerk, or just use their name, dear clerk, 
Mahoney, dear clerk mm -hmm. Fitzgerald. Yeah, you can always just be more specific rather than less specific, and then sometimes that'll allow you to get around the, the problem. You know, when you're talking about husband and wife, there's gender neutral language. You can just say spouse, or you can say partner. You know, I think we've had a conversation uh, in connection with pronoun usage here in our own office within the last couple of years about how do we promote pronoun usage and proper gender identity language when we're speaking to juries, because typically mm -hmm. we always say ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Well, what if the person is sitting on your jury does not define as a lady or a gentleman? A gentleman yeah. You know, so these are opportunities to say members of the jury. Mm -hmm. you know, there, there are gender neutral ways typically that you can get a workaround. Um, and so, again, if you know your audience member self-defines as male or female, I don't think there's any reason to avoid using gendered language. I don't, if it's a convention. I agree with that. Yeah. If it's, it's a convention. Kind of if you don't yeah. know. Exactly. So it's a, if it's a convention that makes sense and is useful in the, in, in the context, then go ahead and use it. But if you don't know and, you're, and you don't want to assume, which I think is a very enlightened perspective, and I think it's something we should all sort of be more cognizant of, you know, do spend some time trying to find ways around the gendered language. I'll tell you, in the trial that I just did in December, I used the language members of the jury because I didn't want to assume that everybody on that jury identified along the binary. Right. So, so it takes time and be patient with yourself, but put in the effort because we'll all be better off for it. 100% put in the effort and be patient with yourself. And going back to that report we had discussed earlier, I saw that a big community we really need to support in Massachusetts attorneys is the transgender community as well with anybody, but more so it said that they're the individuals that identify as transgender Massachusetts attorney, their thoughts on their own well-being was almost half that of the general public attorneys in Massachusetts. So I believe the general public was about 66%, but then they broke it down by your gender identity and sexual identity. And transgenders only identified at being 33% having a good well-being or outlook on their careers. And that actually made me sad. I just feel like we could lift up those who need the most support, especially in an industry that kind of is, as I say, kind of dated and offices and policies don't always seem to take the right approach, but being a good listener and just being somebody who they could pick up the phone and call is such a big thing. Yeah, I think our trans community really suffers a lot more than the other letters in the LGBT sort of groupings. There's so much more work to do. And I think at the end of the day, for me, it all comes down to respect. Yeah. How much does it take? How much effort does it really take to address somebody by their chosen name as opposed to their dead name. You know, this is a person in transition. They, they may have, you know, been born Mary, but now they go by Mark and they may look to you like they have all the hallmark characteristics of still being female. Right. But if you know that they now define themselves and identify as Mark, you've got to make the effort to call them Mark and address them as Mark. And use yeah, because that's not your choice, you know, right. exactly. with anybody, anybody tells you who they are, that is what they tell you. And that's what you should go by. That's right. And I know that in prior reports of the, the well-being committee or whatever it's called from the SJC, you know, there are yeah. stories that have were some stories that were submitted by trans folks that, you know, really talk about how even court employees were, you know, dead naming litigants or dead naming mm -hmm. folks that were in front of them. And that's, 
as I understand it, I can't understand it personally, but I've been told that's very hurtful and it's mm-hmm. very damaging to these people to be referred to by a name that they no longer use. So it comes so, down yeah, to Yeah, it's respect. basically the society's telling them that who they believe they are is not good enough. And that's something they've been fighting for their whole life. I can imagine. I also haven't had that experience, but those are the people that need the support the most. They need somebody to say, this is who you are. I 100% support you. Right. And I think on some wavelength, people have wondered, why should I be forced to adopt a falsity that I know to be untrue? I know Mm. you're a man. And even though you think you're a woman, that doesn't make you a woman. It just makes you crazy. Interesting. Yeah. That is an experience that is a very privileged and disrespectful approach. It's a very un- an unwillingness to perspective adopt in the way that we've talked about during this podcast. The fact that somebody identifies as something you don't believe they are doesn't change the fact that that's how they identify. Right. And it really just comes down to respect. How much effort does it take for you to believe them when they tell you that this is their experience? And I think a lot of people, at least at one point in time, I don't know if this is still the case, just sort of thought people were doing it to like have attention. a spot. Exactly, have a spotlight on them or they were doing it because they wanted to be different. They wanted, you know, folks to to notice them. I have not seen a single example of that. You know, I have not seen a single example of somebody who's chosen to live that life merely for attention. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially because it's, from what I've heard, is very difficult experience to live. Yes. I mean, it kind of, the best way I can associate with it is, of course, going back to my gay experience and say, you know, at times people back in the 90s, especially people say, well, being a gay, being gay is a choice. Who would choose that life existence, given the context of society and cultural norms, etc. So, you know, the trans community has really been taking the brunt of, of I think, progress. Uh, you know, it, it hasn't been progressing as fast. It's delaying, <laughs> yeah. It's... Right. And so it's not just a matter of giving the right, using the right pronouns or calling people by their chosen names. You know, it's also being able to be willing to break heteronormative standards of what professional dress might look like. You know, if you see somebody in your courtroom that appears to be a man from sort of certain characteristics, but he's wearing a skirt, why do you care? Right. What what, what does it mean to you? Yeah, nothing. Whether you're the judge, the court officer, the opposing attorney, uh, or a member of the gallery, that person is still a human being. And how they choose to present themselves is a personal choice that you shouldn't have any judgment of. A hundred percent. It's all goes back to judgment. People are quick to judge. That's right. For me, it goes back to respect. Do you have the respect for these other human beings to say, that doesn't concern me. I'm sure they're still a good person. I'd like to get to know them. Mm -hmm. 100%. So we need to be open to to those differences, those, those heteronormative standards that can fall by the wayside because they are really nothing more than heteronormative standards. And I hope at the very least, this part of our segment brings light to this area. Maybe some people don't see every single day. Maybe they don't know where to start. But I I think just being somebody who is interested in being an ally, just being somebody who can learn more for the LGBTQ community, especially for the Massachusetts lawyers, will go such a long way. And at the end of the day, as you're saying, it's definitely just goes back to respect. And if they feel that you are not being respectful of them. They have every right to kind of set boundaries and get go in the direction that they need to go. And hopefully, 
as allies like the Massachusetts Lawyers, LGBTQ community, Massachusetts Bar Association, a lot of the allyship bar associations come forward, take the initiative, listen to stories. I mean, that's such a great first step, just hearing somebody's story. I think we'll all be better for it. 100%. Thank you for that part. And then just to kind of close out our segment today with you, Joe, do you have advice for a first year attorney or a 1L in law school who's dreaming of becoming an assistant attorney general? Yeah, sure. If you're a first year in law school or you're in law school at all, my number one advice, no surprise here, is you've got to work hard. You've got to put in the effort. You've got to succeed. You've got to do the best you can to come out at the end of the day with the best showing on your transcript that you can possibly put together. That's a big part of applying for legal jobs in any sector. And and the attorney general's office is certainly not going to be any different. If you are still in law school, or if you have done a clerkship, perhaps, but you've not yet actually practiced as an attorney, consider the AGO Fellowship. The AGO Fellowship is a two-year program that we offer here at our office. It is very exclusive. I think every year we only hire maybe two, three, four, something in that range of of number of fellows, and we get probably 200 applications a year. So it's it's a challenging... It's very competitive, but it's a great opportunity for folks that want to sort of dabble in litigation, that want to dabble in public sector litigation specifically. Like I said, it's a two-year program that allows fellows to rotate through three different bureaus. So you might do like eight months in the criminal bureau. You might do eight months in the government bureau, which is where trial is located, you know, and then maybe eight months in public protection and advocacy during charities or nonprofits or civil rights or something like that. So it's a real great opportunity to sort of get your feet wet in a variety of different legal areas. And it is a paid position. We'll get paid the, the starting salary rate for a fellow here. I don't know what the what the salary is. It's probably somewhere between sixty and seventy thousand dollars a year, but it is a paid position. So yeah, that's awesome. You, yeah, and you, great exposure. It really is. It really is. A lot of our fellows that come here for the two year period go off and do they become associates of big firms, they become associates of mid-sized firms, they go off to DA's offices, they go into other government agencies, into, into clerkships, various appellate and state federal appellate courts. So it's a real great launching pad, I, I'd say, for, for folks that are interested in being in the public sector. There are, on occasion, fellows that have finished the two-year program and have become full-fledged assistant AGs right out of the fellowship. It is very, very rare, but if you are a standout superstar fellow, there happens to be an opening, a posting that went out saying that we need an AG in this division you can apply for it and and perhaps could get hired. Cool. Yeah, so really great opportunities there. If you don't go through the fellowship program, definitely consider applying from wherever you're coming from. If you're coming from big law, that's fantastic. You really can have a leg up in the, the application process. I'd say if you're coming from a big law firm, especially in the trial division, most of our attorneys here have come from big law and have spent some time in big law at some point in time. If you're interested in uh, criminal prosecution type work, DA's offices are a great feeder for our AG's criminal bureau. So coming to us from the DA's office is also a real uh, strong possibility. Just keep an eye on the AGO's job postings. There's always open. So you'll find something that you like in it. It definitely sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for people from different practice areas to get a good experience in the trial department. So thanks for sharing that. And do you have any final thoughts on how we can do more to be an ally or support the LGBT community? 
I would just say support equality initiatives everywhere. You know, the LGBTQ community is really still under attack. As we all know, there are cases challenging the rights of LGBTQ people across this nation, making their way to the Supreme Court even still. If you want to call yourself an ally, support organizations that are fighting every day to keep LGBTQ individuals from slipping back into second-class citizenship. You know, do it year-round, not just in June. Everybody loves to come out and be an ally in June, Mm -hmm. you know, because it happens to be Pride Month. But it's the folks that are allies the other 11 months of the year that are truly making the difference. You know, don't just fly... Exactly. Don't just fly your rainbow logo in June because it's trendy. Do it in November because it's meaningful. Yeah, know? helping the LGBTQ community is not a trend. This is a something we really need to commit to and help promote that every human has the same rights. And I mean, it's sad to say that even in 2023, we're still down this road, but it's never over and everything can help. The fight for equality is not seasonal and it's something that has to happen year round. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So just to end it, our infamous three under three, Joe, what is your favorite restaurant? Yeah, so I have to say I'm a sucker for like a really fancy steakhouse. And Ooh, so, me too. So Ruth's Chris, if you've ever yes. been, it's so delicious. Um, and I actually just made a, a reservation for Valentine's Day. For <gasps> we might too. Oh my gosh, maybe we'll be there at the same time. That would be so fun. We could share tables. But if you're sort of looking for a favorite restaurant that's more of an everyday speed and, and cost price point, there's a restaurant in Easton, which is the next town over from where I live, called La Familia, which is a delicious Italian-Portuguese-style restaurant, um, which I love very, very much. That sounds awesome. Yeah. What do you enjoy doing in your spare time? So obviously, top foremost of every list along these lines would be spending time with my fiance, uh, Andrew. And, do you want to uh, give him a shout out? Yeah. Andrew, Andrew Clark, he, he works at Wegmans. Everybody should shop at Wegmans. Yes. Um, he works for Human Resources. He's been doing that job for many, many years, and he's very, very good at it. And so he is really the wind beneath my wings. He keeps me going in this industry. Oh, he's with, so sweet. Without him, I don't know what I would do. There's really no way to do this career, do this, this job in litigation, especially in the public sector, you know, without somebody who really has your back all the time, and, and he 100% does. So spending oh, time with that. him... And our four-year-old golden retriever, Leila. We have a golden too. Yeah, she's such a snuggle bug. Um, Oh, aren't they? She makes all the anxiety go away too. I love that. And so, yeah, so other than that, I I love to host dinner parties for friends and family. I love to cook and bake and try out new recipes. And sometimes if I have the time, I'll go out to trivia nights at a local pub with my friends. I'm not very good at trivia. I don't really know anything trivial. Everything I know, I think is very important. So it's not very (laughs) trivial. But I still go for the socialization and the companion. I love that. And what is your best memory of being a lawyer? So I'd have to say there's two pro bono experiences I had while at Foley Hoag that really sort of sit near and dear in my heart. You know, one I'll never forget was a case I was working on um, where my clients were a single mother and her four kids, or she, I think she had three or four kids, and she was at risk of losing her housing. And so I was able to help secure housing for her under a situation that was extremely uh, anxiety-inducing and stressful for her. And she was so grateful to me for my legal services that she actually gave me a magnet, which I still keep in my house today, that says, if someone tells you you can't have the world, they haven't met my lawyer. I love Um, that. I really appreciate it. And and at an early formative part of my career, that really had an impact on me. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and the second pro bono experience was actually relates to the trans community. I had a pro bono client in Foley uh, who was a female inmate in a Massachusetts state prison. And she was really struggling because she wasn't being permitted access to feminine canteen items that would help her feminize her appearance. And without access to things like breast forms and bras and barrettes and jewelry and makeup and things that would really help her make her appearance look to be more feminine, she was having a real crisis. She had been fighting for this for a while, and we were able to kind of come into the case and and assist her with her, her crusade for these things. And ultimately, we're able to get her the items that she needed without having to file a lawsuit. But once she was able to have access to those items, I'll never forget the phone call that we shared when she called and said, you know, Joe, I was singing in the shower today. Oh, yeah. I have never been happier in my entire life. And here I am sitting here thinking, this is a, a woman who's been in prison and will be in prison for the rest of her life. And she's telling me that behind bars, she has found a place that she has never been happier. You know, and it just made me realize that goosebumps. it's amazing how transformative it can be to finally be permitted to live your truth and mm-hmm. show the world your authentic self. And I'm really grateful that I've chosen a profession that can allow me to help others realize those transformations. And that's what being a lawyer is. It's helping others realize their truth and get to, you know, their happiness. I love that, Joe. And thank you so much for taking the time today to share your story, your background, and then also the amazing experiences you've had and provided other people while your career as an attorney. This show allows us to meet awesome lawyers just like Joe. If you want to connect with him, reach out to him on LinkedIn or through the Massachusetts LGBTQ Bar Association. Thanks so much, Joe. Looking for a court reporter for a deposition, arbitration, trial, or interview? Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. They provide on-demand access to more than 12,000 offices in over 2,700 cities across the country and have working business relationships with 5,000 independent court reporting professionals. No matter where you are or your state's requirement, they can provide an experienced professional court reporter for any situation. Reach out to U.S. Legal Support. Many litigation attorneys struggle to collect, review, and produce electronic information, including emails, texts and chats, social media posts, and e-docs. At Datamine Discovery, they soundly collect and process this information efficiently to a host review platform at an affordable rate. Every litigator deserves to have eDiscovery review software that is efficient and affordable with access to customer service and project managers that make them feel supported. Hundreds of litigation attorneys from Boston and beyond trust Datamine every month to assist them with eDiscovery. You should too. Well, that's our show. Check out our website, wickedgoodlawyers.com for more on Joe, the podcast, and to purchase show merch. A big thank you to our show sponsors, Data Mine and U.S. Legal Support. I always love to hear from our listeners, so please subscribe to the show, add me on LinkedIn, and email me at wickedgoodlawyers.com.